How's it going, men? Welcome to the men's global live stream. My name is Dusty Davis, and I am so stoked to be with you as we kick into a brand new series entitled Identity Issues. Now, this is going to be a journey through the book of Ephesians. It's going to be a six-part series. Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the Bible because it is so relevant to us today. The book of Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote while in prison for being a follower of Jesus. Now, what could a letter from Paul to this church possibly have to do with us in 2023? Turns out a lot, right? There's a lot that's relevant to us today. Just like in the U.S. today, Ephesus, where the church uh, was, was a center uh, for thought and ideas. People flocked there to share ideas and ultimately to worship. The question is to worship what? Because all of us are worshipers. The only question is, what is it that we're worshiping? Ephesus was also somewhat of a pagan regional center. There was the temple of, of Artemis, and there was the temple to Diana that was also prominent. It sat on a major trade route, so it, it was wealthy. There was marble streets, there was public libraries, there was bathhouses, and even a huge entertainment venue, Life in Ephesus was pretty good. But not everything was as it as it should be. Unfortunately, even amongst the followers of Jesus in that place. In this series, we're going to touch on many aspects of the Christian life, of what does it look like for God's man to walk and follow after Jesus. But the series, like I said, is entitled Identity Issues. You see, one of the most commonly asked questions that you and I will receive, and one of the seemingly most easy questions to answer, in reality, is one of the most profound and most life-shaping questions. And that's this simple question. Who are you? Who are you? Right? What is your identity? Tell me who it is that you think you are. And when we're asked that question... Uh, our mind might race to a few of the things that we most commonly use to describe ourselves, to introduce ourselves to someone new. We might go to our jobs or our educational status. We might talk first about the things that we like, our interests or our hobbies. We might talk about our presence on, on social media, handles, the number of followers, where it is that we live, the numbers in our bank accounts. It might be our looks, it might be our health, it might be our physical abilities that we look to to tell us who it is that we are. We might also jump to where it is that we're from, right? Our background, our race, maybe even our plans for the future. But make no mistake, the manner in which you and I answer that question gives a lot of direction to our lives, either for glory or for ruin. Because if you and I are unclear or unable to answer that question, or if we answer that question with anything but God's truth and what God's word says about who we are, then our lives will be like a table built with three legs, where one is faulty and eventually everything will fall. Why is that? Guys, because identity informs all of our actions. Identity drives activity. It really drives everything. What we do in life grows out of who we 
are, or at least who it is that we think we are. How we see ourselves becomes the lens through which we see everything in life. It's through our identity that we start to develop feelings of either hope or despair. Confidence or, or insecurity, confusion or, or clarity about our life in its direction. It's where we get feelings of either purposefulness or powerlessness, belonging or exclusion, ultimately feelings of worthiness or feelings of shame. Identity is really about understanding who it is that we think we are. And then that will lead us to what we think we are about. Now, we just went through a big list, right? Jobs, goals, where we're from. And that's just a small sampling of some of the things that we can look to to define us, to tell us who it is that we are. And most often we look to the things that we have to define us, but if our past is littered with pain or failures or shortcomings, we might be tempted to look at the things that we lack, right? Our identity might be wrapped up in our, in our past failures. It might be in the relationship that we're no longer in, the jobs that we don't have or no longer have, the friends that we've lost or the health that we so long for. These can become the things that most clearly identify who we are. And so we're tempted to fall off the rails either way, right? Wrongly pumped up by our worldly successes and the things that we have or wrongly pulled down by our temporary failures or struggles. But here's the real problem. Because even that list of good and wonderful things and that list of more difficult, hurtful, challenging circumstances are ultimately temporary things. And if there's anything that the COVID lockdown taught us, it's that anything temporary in our lives can be taken from us like that. Our jobs, our friends and gathering with them, our travel plans, entertainment, the ability to live normally, that can all be taken away. And if that defines us, if that's what we've built our life on, we can lose a lot in a moment. But none of the good things that God gave us were ever meant to support God-sized pillars in the heart of God's man. What do I mean by that? I mean that these things are simply not strong enough to build our, our lives upon, our identities upon. When any of these things begin to tell me who I am, I will inevitably start to deify them, start to treat them as holy, make sacrifices for them, and look to them to tell me who I am. But like we said, this thinking isn't new. Let's look back to Paul's encouragement to an early church where he's going to correct a lot of this thinking. Now, in order to encourage and challenge the followers of Jesus in Ephesus, uh, we also will be lifted up as we go through the book of Ephesians. Paul wanted to help them, and by proxy us, settle their identity issues. And that is the backdrop of this new series. Are you ready? Then let's go. Grab a Bible and turn with me to Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 1 today. I'm going to be reading and teaching from the New Living Translation. Ephesians 1, chapter 1. Paul starts off with a greeting and immediately he starts off by telling the Ephesians who he is, identity statement, and in Christ who they are. Identity statements open the first chapter in the book of Ephesians. 
This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus, who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Right away. It can be mistaken that Paul is trying to flex, right? That Paul's trying to impress them, that he might be trying to say, I'm about to tell you some truth. And if you don't like what I'm saying, you can take it up with God because ultimately he's the one who chose me. But nothing could be further from the truth. With this introduction, Paul is reminding the reader, and I think reminding himself, that he deserves no glory, that he deserves no praise, that he should not be followed. Why? Because God chose him. God changed him. God saved Paul. It's a humble reminder that we will see repeated in this book. Brothers, God chose you. God chose you. Not because you deserved it. Not because I deserve it or earned it or merited it or sustain it. You're going to see that spelled out very quickly in the verses that follow. But Paul takes his first step in identifying their true identity. I mean, guys, think about Paul. Think about who he was when God chose him. Right? That's what Paul's trying to remind them. But then Paul takes a step to remind them who they are. He says, to God's holy people. Now, the same is true of you and the same is true of me, but if you're anything like me, my guess is you don't often feel very holy. I don't think the audience in Ephesus felt very holy. I bet most often their minds, just like ours, are more consumed with the list of ways that we're blowing it, the places that we're currently falling short, or we're focused on our pains and our failures, just like the person we said who identifies themselves by what they lack or the mistakes they've made in the past. And so Paul wants to remind them and us, you are holy. Why? Because Jesus Christ makes you holy. Because Christ makes you holy. Paul goes on to remind them that everything about our faith is one direction. It is grace and it is love and it flows from the Father to his children, period. We have a new identity, which is being holy. And that gives our life a new trajectory, which is following Jesus. Because out of our identity comes a new purpose for our lives. I want you to say this out loud. New identity, new trajectory. Let's go. Like Paul said, to God's holy people, identity, who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. That was their new identity and their new trajectory. And the same is true of everyone who has ever followed after Jesus, starting with the 12. The very first followers of Jesus, each one was given a brand new identity and then a new purpose in life. We see wishy-washy, emotional, impulsive Peter become the rock. Mary Magdalene goes from demon-possessed to Holy Spirit-filled. Matthew, the outcast, the sinner, the tax collector, becomes a beloved disciple brought in close. Nathaniel, he rejected where Jesus was from. His very birthplace became a follower of the Messiah. This is what Jesus does. New identities and new trajectories. But here's the problem. A lot of times we either don't believe 
or don't fully grasp or even don't feel that that is what is most true about us. Being a holy people is one of those hard statements because we just don't believe it's true. Even right now when you hear that, that you are a holy person, you might be thinking, but Dusty, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm still doing. And I even called myself a Christian, a follower of Jesus while I was doing all of it. And all of those statements would be true and you would be too far gone if holiness was something that you and I were earning, bringing upon ourselves or deserving. But scripture is too clear of the contrary. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 11 says this, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by all of the awesome things that you've done. That's not what it says. By calling on the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. That's how, by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. Ephesians tells us, chapter 5, verse 25 through 27, talking about Christ's love for his bride, the church, you and me. He, Jesus, gave up his life for her. Why? To make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. This is the nature of the gospel. But in and of ourselves, we are more wicked than we could ever imagine. And at the same time, we are more loved than we'd ever dare to believe. Through Christ's blood, God has made us holy and treated us excellently. So you see, in, in Christ, we're given a new identity. But, but God didn't stop there. Look at verse 3. It says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ. Just, just look at that. Every spiritual blessing. That's what's been given to us from the Father through the Son. A few things to point out in this verse beginning with the very last part of that statement, right? What is it that keeps us? What is it that, that makes us deserving of every spiritual blessing? Again, just the reminder, it's because we were united with Christ. Why, was all, why are all these great things given to us? Why have we been blessed with every spiritual blessing? Why are we being treated this way? Is it because of our incredible obedience, our humility? Maybe the way we've treated other people in our lives, the sin that we've abstained from, how much we've given of our, ourselves, our time, our efforts, our money, memorizing the Bible, attending church. No, it's because we're united with Christ, period. Our position of blessing comes from our position of unity with Jesus. And just like we said earlier, how did we get there? It was all God moving towards us. So never for a moment should we get puffed up about our spiritual achievements. And at the same time, let's never believe the lie of the enemy that we're too far gone. The gospel is about what Jesus Christ has already done, already accomplished, already won, period. Now let's also look at the truth that these are spiritual 
and not material blessings. And unfortunately, this is often miscommunicated to us today. Too many people focus on blessings that we can see, health, wealth, enjoyment, relationships, happiness, but that's, that's not what Paul is talking about. Those are not the things that were promised. These are special blessings beyond God's general grace for only those who have become united with Jesus Christ. What are they? Well, if you run from verses 4 to verses 8, we get a little bit of a list of the things that God has provided. That God loves us, starting in verse 4. That he chose us. We see that we're now holy and without fault in God's eyes. That we've been adopted into his family, it says in verse 5. That God delights in us. That all of this gave him great pleasure. It says that he's poured out his glorious grace on us, that we now belong to the Son, that he's purchased our freedom, forgiven our sins, showered us with kindness. All of that is true of you and I in Christ. But I'm not sure if you caught the one word in all of that that has unfortunately sparked decades of debates. And if we're honest, still makes us uncomfortable today. And it's the word chosen. Because chosen brings up the doctrine of election or the idea that believers were chosen by God or predestined. Because verse four started off, it says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. And the entire idea of being chosen or election, right, which leads to predestination, makes us uncomfortable for a lot of reasons, if we're honest. Because we don't like the idea that if some are chosen, it means that there are some who aren't chosen. And if we're honest in our sinful nature, we don't like the idea of God choosing us because we like to think that we chose him. Our Western culture leaks all over our faith because we love earning and winning and deserving and our hearts don't like the idea that we didn't have a hand in our salvation. You know, I love the language we used to use back in the 70s and 80s. We wouldn't ask people when they found Jesus, we would say, have you been saved? And this verse, right, this idea of being chosen is a mystery. It's right in the middle of our passage today. So what do we do with it? I love this. English theologian John Stott put it like this, right? It puts us in the right mindset, reminding us that, Quote, election is not a human speculation, but a divine revelation. And the Bible itself claims this often without giving you and I much depth of explanation. We see uh, what Martin, James, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones also articulated this. He said, in scripture, election is a statement, not an argument. It, it is. I mean, look at scripture, guys. John chapter 15, verse 16. You didn't choose me. I chose you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, And for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We're always thankful. What are we thankful? That God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago. We see this even in the Old Testament. God chose the nation of Israel to be his people. He chose Abraham, Isaac, Moses. God chooses. And it's a hard 
concept. Because we also see clearly that we have free will. But God is sovereign. Does your head hurt yet? Men, the simple reality is this. We would never have chosen Jesus had he not chosen us first. But what do we do with that? How does that truth move us forward as God's men? I think, I think this is how we grasp it. We live in the humility that God chose us for his purposes and not our performance. And see, that reality doesn't create pride, it creates humility. And we enjoy and we live into the identity that that creates, the security it gives us. And then we move out trusting that God will use us to draw other people to himself. And verse 5 tells us why he chose us. Because of his love and according to his great pleasure. And what is the right response to all that? Paul lays it out in the next verse. Look at verse 6. So we praise God for the glorious grace that he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. The only right response to the reality that God has chosen us is to worship him with our whole lives. Back to the text, verse 7. He, God, is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered us with his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. And I want to pause again here because we see another identity statement. God's holy people who have been rescued, saved, and redeemed. That's the banner over your life. And look at how all of those things are in the past tense. Salvation is not the end of our lives. It's the beginning. It's the starting point for everyone who follows Jesus. We have been Purchased According to this verse, we, our freedom was purchased with the very blood of Jesus. And that gives us a huge truth, a huge reality. We are now free, owned by Christ, right? But free from what? What used to be our master? What were we in bondage to? From the power of sin. We were all slaves to the power and the penalty of sin. Right, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 14, for the follower of Jesus, sin is no longer our master. It no longer gets to call the shots. There was a point when that was true, but that's no longer our identity. Sin is not our master. We're not subject to it. We're not controlled by it. And that became true at the moment of salvation and is true for all of the problems and temptations that we face today. There is no sin in your life and in my life that cannot be overcome through the power of God's Holy Spirit. And I don't know where you're living right now, brothers, but there is no addiction. There's no fear or anxiety. There's no amount of anger or lack of self-control, no disappointment, no diagnosis, no betrayal of your friends, no loss of a loved one. For those of us in Christ, there is nothing that can separate us from God's love and there is no chains that the power of God cannot break in our lives. 
Paul goes on and on to repeat this, to discuss in detail the very plan of God to bring all things together under the authority of Jesus Christ, to bring us an inheritance that can never be taken away from us, that God would work everything according to his good plan. And we see in verse 12, Paul lays out all of God's good purposes to bring people into a saving relationship with himself through the Son and to give us the promise of that power we are talking about of the Holy Spirit. Look at the second half of verse 13. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own. There's another identity statement. How did he do it? By giving you the Holy Spirit. Or a lot of translations say, by sealing you with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised us. The follower of Jesus has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. But, but what does that mean? Well, the readers at that time would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. Because seals were common. They're still somewhat common today. But seals were basically used for three different reasons. We're going to look at what it is that seals did. So for us, what does being sealed by the Holy Spirit mean for us? How were seals used in this time? First, seals were used to confirm something as genuine. See, seals proved authenticity. Seals prove authenticity. We see this today still. The seal that's on U.S. currency. The seal that's on our U.S. passports. These types of seals prove that the item that you're holding is genuine. That's what the Holy Spirit of God has done for you and I. As we've put our faith in Jesus, the Spirit confirms and proves that we really and truly and genuinely are God's people. This week, read Romans 8 and look at all of the things that God's Spirit testifies about in your life and in my life. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24 reminds us that the presence of the Holy Spirit proves that God is at home in our hearts. It says, those who obey God's commandments remain in fellowship with him and he with them. And we know he lives in us. Why? Because the Holy Spirit he gave us lives in us. Again, proving that authenticity. He goes on in chapter 4, verse 13, to say that the Spirit proves that we're in Christ and that Christ in us. It says, and God has given us his Spirit as proof that we live in him and he lives in us. But seals at that time didn't only prove authenticity. Secondly, a seal was used to make something safe and secure. See, seals provide safety and security. They prove authenticity, but they also provide safety. What do I mean about that? Things would be sealed like a, a letter or the tomb that Jesus's body was laid in, and they were sealed to protect it. In verse 14, the Spirit is called God's guarantee. Now, in, in Greek, the word is ingesi or sphragizo, right, which means to, to stamp. And the connotations there with that stamp or that token would have been used as either an engagement ring, a promise to wed, or money, earnest money, that's put as a down payment that would secure a legal claim. 
In both of those instances, in an engagement and in a down payment, it makes the individuals feel safe and secure that what was talked about is going to happen. This is what the Spirit does in the life of the follower of Jesus. It removes the fear and the doubt about whether or not we're going to measure up on that day. When we stand before Jesus, it's the Spirit that provides the safety and security. When Jesus says that nothing can take you from my hand because you've been sealed with my Spirit. I love this. Jude chapter 1, verse 24. Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away, and he'll bring you with great joy into his glorious presence. It's his spirit in us that gives us that confidence. He does all of that. He keeps us safe. He keeps us secure, even in our faith. Lastly, seals were used to demonstrate ownership. See, seals pinpoint ownership. They make very clear that something is owned and who it's owned by. In, in verse 14, where it says we were sealed by the spirit, this would also be like a royal seal right? Or how we would brand or stamp or write on something that we own. And this is done so that if something was ever removed from the original owner, they could point to the seal. This is why cattle were branded, because when, when herds would get mixed up or when cattle thieves would steal, the owner could point to the brand and say, that one is mine. Jesus Christ has ownership over us. He's laid claim to us, to our lives and to our hearts, and he will fight any enemy, any competing claim. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, God identifies us as his own, and it says he's identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised. God proves his ownership. I have a huge library of books. And I let people borrow them all the time. But I've placed my name, that stamp, in the front of my books. Because at some point, I'm going to want my book back. And I come to your house and I grab it out of your shelf. And you go, Dusty, I'm pretty sure that's my book. And I go, well, take a look right here where it has my stamp. Just like a stamp on a book that one day I will come to retrieve. Whenever the enemy tries to lay claim to you or me, whenever the enemy hurls lies about your past and your mistakes, about your current failures, and he tries to define you, or he tries to lay some type of claim to you, right? If the enemy tries to convince you that it's your evil fleshly desires, right, that, that define who you are and that God wants nothing to do with you, right? When our emotions and our thoughts betray us, that's when Jesus Christ, with the fire of jealous love in his eyes, is going to step in the middle, grab a hold of us, point to the seal of his Holy Spirit, and say, back off, enemy. This one's mine. Ownership. The Holy Spirit proves God's ownership over us. As Paul is finishing, as he's ending out the first chapter, which at the time would have just been the first kind of set of ideas in this letter, he begins to, to transition to praying for this young church. He actually reminds them that he has not stopped thanking God for them and praying earnestly or constantly for them. But what I love and what I want to encourage you with is what it is that Paul prays for specifically. 
I mean, of all the things that Paul could have sought the Lord for on behalf of this church, of all the things he could have lifted up, of all the requests, of all the covering, of all the provision, Paul asks God for two things. He asks for wisdom and he asks for power. He asks that God would provide wisdom and power to this church. Look at verse 17. Asking God, right? Paul in his prayer, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight that you might grow in knowledge. And then in verse 19, he comes back with that second request. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Wisdom, power. Like we said, first he prayed for wisdom because Paul knew that the early church, just like us today, would need wisdom to know what is true, what is real, what is right, if we're going to be able to discern God's will, that we would be able to spot lies and counterfeits. But knowledge alone isn't helpful because we need the power to be able to step into that truth, to defend it, to live it out. And I think this is what we need more today than ever. We need wisdom and we need power. You know, for wisdom's sake, there's a reason that Jesus Christ didn't come to earth only as a conquering hero to display military might and topple governments because many, many believed that that was going to be his primary role, warrior right? There's a reason why he didn't come as a sweet-talking politician just to kind of put the nations back together politically. There's a reason he didn't come just as a doctor to take care of our physical healing or a therapist just to fix our relational problems. Jesus Christ came as a teacher because the greatest battle that you and I face is a battle against lies, is the fight against un. Truth, our greatest enemy or the tactics of our enemy have always been lies and deception. And the enemy's methods, guys, hasn't changed in 2,000 years. The enemy is still trying to convince you and I that God is not who we think he is and that we aren't who we think we are. The lie, the lie that God is somehow holding out on us, that society and and all these expectations are constricting us that we would be better off deciding for ourselves what is right, what makes us happy. It's the same way in the garden. If you look around, is all of this newfound freedom causing anyone to feel more free? As we, as a society, continue to define what is right and what is real and what is true and live according to our heart, which, by the way, God's word tells us is deceptive and wicked, and all of a sudden, all of our freedom is starting to look a whole lot like bondage. This is the lie the enemy was selling Eve. The enemy slithered up to Eve and whispers a lie. Did God really say that you would die? Eve, can you really trust what God says? Or can I at least get in there and weasel as the enemy and pick apart to get you to doubt what it was that he was really saying? Surely you won't die. Come on, Eve, the fruit looks good. God doesn't want you to have fun. God doesn't trust you. God's holding out on you. And then to Adam, he whispers, more lies. Don't choose God, choose her. 
Do what you want. The enemy just tries to erode truth with that question. Did God really say? And he's whispering those same lies to us today. Did God really say sex is for marriage? That sex is for a man and a woman only? Did God really say that you're supposed to be honest in all situations? Government doesn't need any more of your money through taxes. Did God really say that money was going to come between he and I? I feel like they can coexist. Did God ever really say that I can't just live for myself, do what I want, pursue everything, and then kind of lump him in there too? It was against these lies and this backdrop that Christ came as our Redeemer. That's why he came as a teacher and a warrior. A warrior who would ultimately defeat the enemy, right? Like we said, breaking the power of sin, right? Destroying Satan and his strongholds of lies and teaching us what is true as we engage in the daily battle for truth. Guys, in this session, we started off by talking about identity, right? That you and I were going to have a daily fight to believe who it is that we really are and who it is that God really is and trusting that God's desires for us lead us towards the best life. Jesus spoke so plainly in John 10.10. 10. He told us, he exposed the enemy. This is what he's going to do. Steal, kill, destroy, steal, relationship, steal, joy, kill, intimacy. This is what he does, but I've come that you might have life abundantly. My family and I go to Yosemite almost every year. And you know, when I'm on those windy roads, I don't ever once look at that guardrail and think, they don't trust me to drive well. It's blocking my view. It's restricting how fast I can go. I know those are there to keep me alive. What if the same is true of every precept that God gave us? That they're not restricting, that they're not outdated, that they're not backwards, but they are in fact to keep you and I alive and alive in the most abundant way, right? Jesus said he came that we might have life abundant, parason, overflowing like a coffee cup that's just overflowing. Our temptations as we enter this series, as we enter this book, might be to see what follows as a list of things that you and I need to do in order to please God, in order to remain in his blessings. But remember, our identity as God's men, as followers of Jesus, as God's sons and daughters, is a call to be, not a call to do. You know, the people around Jesus asked him and said, we want to get involved in the stuff that you're doing. How do we do the works of God? Jesus said, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one that he sent. And not a passive belief, but a belief that would drive action, a belief that would create identity. And guys, no amount of good intentions or effort is ever going to allow us to somehow live according to God's perfect standards of holiness. Remember, that's the gospel. That not that we're okay when we're compared to other people or that we're sort of sick and we just need to get pushed over the line. The standard is God's perfect holiness. We are more wicked and far away from that than we could ever imagine, but 
what did we say? At the same time, more love than we could ever dream because our God has provided both the power and the desire to live according to his truth. One of my life verses is Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. He takes care of both sides. He's the source. He gives us new desires to desire the things that he desires. And then he gives us the ability to live those things out. That's why Paul prayed for power and wisdom. Guys, wisdom without God's power is only going to lead us to legalism and religiosity. But Power without God's wisdom is just going to lead us to be these emotionally driven people who want experiences with God without experiencing his truth. We need both. And praise God, he's made both available to us. Wisdom and power. As we end this session, I want to ask you a few questions to consider in the coming days. Have you believed a lie about who you are or about who God is. What effect is that taking in your life, practically? Have you believed the lie that there's something you need to do to earn God's favor or his love? And as you look forward, as we we enter into this six-part series together, what are you in the greatest need of right now, wisdom or power? To know the truth or to be able to live according to it? I want you to pray into those things as we go into this series. But right now, I want to pray for you as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. But God, thank you for our new identities as sons and daughters of the King. Rescued, redeemed, new creations with a home in heaven, with hope on earth, with a message, with a new identity and a new trajectory, Lord. Send us out. Our desire is to make much of your name, to bring you glory, and to introduce as many people as we can to you, Jesus. Throughout this series, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to your truth. I pray that you would continually fill us, Holy Spirit, with your power. God, that you would give us the strength to live for you in a time when it's becoming challenging to do that, Lord. But you are no less powerful. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us. Fill us with that anew today. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time.